Well, it's a joy to be with you again. We've had uh, a couple of weeks where we had to do things a little differently, but finally, we're going to continue where we are studying um, these books in the Old Testament, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And as we do that, we have to acknowledge something that's true, and, and that's for most of the world, and for most people in the world, it's not very popular to be a true Christian, a true follower of God. And by a true Christian, I mean that, at least in terms of how people see it from the outside, I mean someone who lives by what the Bible says. And we know a true Christian is someone who has faith in Christ, but in terms of others looking at the person, it's not very popular to live out the things the Bible says and teaches. And we can know this is true by just reading through what Scripture tells us. A couple of months ago, we studied through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words about what it looks like for people to know him, to live for him. If you read that Sermon on the Mount, it becomes very clear that most people do not live that way. It's a very countercultural message, the thing Jesus calls us to. And when something comes up that runs against someone's expectations, if you expect one thing or somebody to act one way and then they act another, well, it will usually produce some form of opposition. And if you're a true follower of Christ, you may have experienced someone who's tried to stop you from doing what you believe is right, what you believe God has said. And if you ever feel that, I want to assure you that you are not alone, because that's what our passage today is all about. And it's for that reason that I think books like this, even ones from the Old Testament thousands of years ago, while they're so relevant to us today, particularly this passage and this time in Scripture that we're looking at, because God's people, God's followers, they don't have their own country or nation, they are a small group, a small group of people in the midst of a larger empire, a large group of people that do not know God and do not follow him. And they're a small group within that trying to be faithful even when there's opposition. I would remind you we are in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, and in the Old Testament it's about God, the one true God, revealing himself to a particular people group, the Israelites. And he had a relationship with them. He gave them a promised land to live in. But by their sin and their failure to live what God had told them, they had to go into exile. He took them out of that promised land for 70 years. And now at the end of that time, the people are starting to come back to the promised land. And that is what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament are about. The people coming back to the promised land. They don't all come back at once, though. They come in stages and groups. And the first group that comes is the people we're talking about today. Sometime around the year 538 BC, the first group comes back out of exile into the promised land, the land of Israel. What happened in that year was that the king ruling over the empire named King Cyrus, he gave permission, he gave a decree that the Jews, the Israelites, they could return to the land of Israel and they could rebuild their temple to worship God. They're led by a man named Zerubbabel and also a high priest named Jeshua or Joshua. When they get to the land we talked about a couple weeks ago, they're afraid of the other people around them. But because they're afraid, they decide to worship God and trust him. They build an altar so they can start to worship him through sacrifices. And they begin to rebuild the temple. They lay a foundation for the temple and then they celebrate with a loud shout. Some people are weeping because they're, they're sad that the people have come to this, but most of them are shouting with a loud shout of praise to God. 
That's where we left off. But now we're going to see what they're doing is going to provoke some opposition. And how do they respond when that happens? How do they persevere? So if you're not already there, I encourage you to turn into your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 4, or you can follow along with the words on the screen. And if you're here in the sanctuary, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word and follow along as I read our passage for today. I'm not going to read all of Ezra chapter 4, but I'm going to read a couple verses from it. I'm going to start with the first five and then maybe read one more and then read some from chapter 5. So Ezra chapter 4, starting in verse 1, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version and this is what uh, the word of the Lord says. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. We have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esharhadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Verse 3, but Zerubbabel Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia has commanded us. Verse four, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then we see the conclusion in this story in the very last verse of chapter 4. It says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. But look what happens in chapter 5. The Bible wasn't written with the same chapters and verses that we have now. Those were added much later. We're meant to keep reading. And what happens next? Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of having a relationship with you. God, I pray that you would lead us to continue to know you, persevere in knowing you and living for you. And even when that produces opposition, may we still worship you in purity. May you give us the strength to persevere for your glory. I pray that as we read this passage today, we may see how you are with us through all opposition and that we can trust you. May we see you clearly in our text today. Thank you, God, for being with us and for the person and the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that makes what we will read today possible. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So our story today is about some opposition that God's people experience. But the reason they are opposed, the reason they have to deal with this opposition is because they are committed to pure worship. They are committed 
to pure worship. If you're using the outlines that we have in the back or online, that would be your first blank, pure worship. When they get back, there's some adversaries that see what they're doing, that they're rebuilding the temple and that they're celebrating. And they, these adversaries or enemies are opposing these people. Most of them are from the old tribes of Judah and Benjamin. That's why our text says that. Although some are Levites, priests, but most of these people from Judah and Benjamin, they're now dealing with these adversaries. And these people come to them and they ask them if they can help rebuild the temple. Now, on the surface, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable request. If somebody comes and says, hey, can we help you do this thing that you're doing for God? But let's ask, who are these people, these adversaries? Well, they're a people group coming from two sources. On the one hand, there are some people who were left in this land. When God's people, the Israelites, sinned against God, he brought other nations in, and he took most of the people out. And when he took most of them out, there were still a few who were left. And those who were left, they married the people who the empires moved to that land. Remember, back in this day, the way empires would conquer an area is they would come into an area when they won the battle, they take most of the people away, and they put people from other places in there so that people would mix and that they'd be loyal to the empire and not to their homeland. So these people, they tell us they have been there for about 150 years when one of the kings, two empires ago, one of the kings of Assyria brought them to this land. And when they showed up in the land, we can read about this earlier in the Old Testament, they experienced some problems, some troubles. And so they were taught how they could worship the true God. They said, what you need to do is worship the God of the Israelites. So they did that, but we also find out they worshiped some other gods as well. If you want to read about it more, it's in 2 Kings 17. But let me just read a couple verses from that. 2 Kings 17, verse 32, says of these people who have been moved into the land, they feared the Lord. They appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests, of the high places. They sacrificed for them in shrines of the high places. That's not the way God wanted to be worshiped, but they're trying to worship God. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So when these people come to the Israelites and they say, let us help you to rebuild the temple. We've been worshiping the same God that you are, that there's an element of truth to that. They had been showing some worship to the Israelites' God, but they'd also been worshiping their own gods. They worshiped their own false gods. And these Israelites who are now in the promised land, they know that that's not what God wants. He doesn't want his people to worship him and worship and serve other things and other interests. And so that's why they tell the people in verse 3, you will have nothing, no part, nothing in common with us in building the house, the temple, to our God. This is a unified rejection. And it's important because they know that if they let these people help them, it's going to open the door for idolatry, for other people worshiping false gods. Even though they're a small, weak group. We talked a couple weeks ago, this is probably a group of around 50,000 people. But they've learned something. They're avoiding the mistakes of their ancestors that cost them the promised land. That's what had happened to their ancestors. So their ancestors had also started to worship other gods. They'd compromised with the people of the land. 
that passage we just looked at from 2 Kings, it tells us what they did in 2 Kings 17.7. It says this occurred. They were sent into exile because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God. The one who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from slavery, from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. They had sinned against him because they had feared, they had worshipped other gods. And now, finally, the Israelites are learning this lesson. They're learning that compromise with sin leads to more sin. They're learning that if they do this, if they compromise with those who are worshiping other gods, it takes them away from their true, their pure task of bringing God glory. Now, they're not trying to cause problems with these people. They don't want a conflict. They, they would love peace with their neighbors because peace is wonderful, but peace is not worth sacrificing purity of worship before God. Being at peace with their neighbors is not worth throwing aside what God has told them. They're building God's temple. They know they need to do it God's way. And they're a little aware that these people don't have their best interest at heart. That's why they tell them that they're going to do this as the king of the land. The king far away in Persia, King Cyrus, told them that they could do this. They bring this up because they have a hint already these people are trying to stop them from rebuilding this temple. This is a commitment God's people have to make again and again when those who don't worship God want to have a part of what they're doing while still living in their sin. Later, we'll see in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah has to deal with this same issue. And he says to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. We, his servants, will rise. We will build. In his case, they're building a wall. But he says to these people, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now, when we read these things, our mind may think, that, that sounds really harsh, Pastor. Why are they just telling these people they have nothing to do with them? It seems like they're shutting them out completely. But that's not actually true. They're not completely rejecting others. There's an implication that we'll see that the people are welcome to join them in building if they commit themselves to God if they commit to knowing God, to worshiping him in purity, only him, only the true God and not their other gods. The problem with these people is not that they're a different race or ethnicity. The problem is their impurity. They're not committed to the Lord. And the reason I know this is because of something that happens a little later in the book of Ezra. Later, they'll celebrate the feast of Passover in chapter six. And this is what we're told then. We're told the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile. That makes sense. But it was also eaten by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land so that they could worship the Lord, the God of Israel. You see what's happening there is they said, anyone can join us, but you have to move yourself away from the sin, the worship of other gods that these people are doing. So the issue we have here is these people are saying, well, we still want to worship our other gods, but we also want to help you build the temple. And that is where they draw the line. Worship's not restricted to one race or one people group or one country. Worship is for those who have a relationship with God, for those who are committed to him. We see here God's emphasis of the importance of pure worship, of right beliefs about God, commitment to only him 
This is something he talks about repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Exodus, he tells the people, Now therefore, if you will only indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, my agreement with you, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy, a set-apart, a separate nation. He'll pick this up again in the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, he says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Unfortunately, when he said it back then, they didn't get the memo. They started compromising with these other people groups around them. They were supposed to be holy and separated from sin. It's an issue that all of God's people will struggle with at one time or another. In fact, later in the book of Ezra, we're going to read about what happens when pure worship is rejected and this compromise comes in among God's people. And so the same is true today for believers in Jesus Christ. We don't quite use the the same words. We don't have a temple we're building, but if we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, he calls us to the same purity and holiness. This is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, writing to Christians, say, says, You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You, Christians, are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The reason God has set you apart is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God calls his people to be holy, to be separate, to worship him in purity so that they can tell others about how great God is. But when we do that, that doesn't make everyone happy. And that will produce opposition. There will always be pressure to lower the bar, to not live according to what God has said. Now, when someone does that, that doesn't mean we seek to destroy them. We must show them grace and mercy if someone's not living for God. But we must not compromise God's truth, especially when it involves worship. We must not compromise what he has said. His word must come first. Because when we live for purity, we're going to have to deal with and struggle against the strategies of the opposition. The rest of chapter 4, and a large chunk of it, talks about those who are opposed to God and the various strategies they use to work against God's people, the strategies of the opposition. And so if you're following the outline, I have a couple of them that that come together. I had a little fun. I did some alliteration for these. So they all start with the, the same letter as we look at them. But one strategy that those who are opposed to God will use to try to stop us from following him is they'll use fear or they'll use fortune. They'll try to bribe us, but bribe doesn't start with the same letter as fear. So I put fortune there on your outline. So they'll use fear or fortune to try to stop us. Maybe you've experienced that, someone trying to make you afraid of living for God or to try to use some financial reason to push you away from serving him. In our text, we see this. We see the real attitude of the people revealed because they said, we want to worship with you. We want to rebuild the temple. But as soon as they're told no, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. They made them afraid to build and they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. This happened all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. They're frightening the Jews and God's people. 
We see that even though they said they wanted to worship God, they, they really care about themselves. They don't care about God. And worship is supposed to be about God, not what we want, but they didn't get what they wanted, so they work against God's people. They hire, they bribe counselors, officials, advisors, agents to try to discourage and intimidate them. Their influence over what's happening in the temple is gone, so they resort to violence and political pressure. They did everything they could to make the Israelites afraid to seek God. This is a strategy that enemies of God love. They love to try to make God's people afraid. And that's why God says so often in Scripture that we are not to be afraid. There's many commands about that, but one of my favorites is from the book of Joshua. Joshua's leading the people into the promised land, and God tells them, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. They're to turn from their fear to trust in God. It's also a warning to us to not use fear or intimidation to get what we want if his enemies are not supposed to do that either. So if they can't use fear, then they may try to use the influence of money or possessions, wealth, to get us to live, to act against God. The New Testament warns us about this danger. It says we, those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless, harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Money itself is a tool, a resource. There's nothing bad in it. But if we love money, it can lead us away from God. It makes us susceptible to being bribed, to being pushed away from worshiping him. Fortunately, though, the Israelites do not fall for these things. They resisted, but they paid a price for their commitment to pure worship that we talked about. They wanted to worship God in purity, but instead they had to deal with decades of being frustrated in their purposes and plans. This type of opposition continued against them for over 20 years. They experienced this. The enemies used local officials to effectively stop the king's decree to rebuild the temple. They were unable to build it through the rest of King Cyrus's reign. There was a guy who came after him named Cambyses that they don't even tell us about because they weren't able to do anything then, all the way until the guy after that named Darius. They experienced this opposition. What they experienced was that if people cannot get to us through fear or by money, then they'll try to get to others. And what they'll do is they may mislead others or malign us to others. That's how I got the two M's there. They tell lies about us is really the point. Enemies of God will tell lies about his people to stop them from living him. They'll lie about the truth or they'll lie about you. That's what the next couple verses are about. But there's something weird going on here that's different from how we write history or how we typically read books. Verses 6 through 23 are happening at a different time than the story we've been talking about. They're later examples of God's people dealing with hostility and opposition. The author's trying to establish a theme of persistent, recurring hostility the Israelites are experiencing from people who are outside them, who don't worship God. 
Now, again, this isn't how we write history. When we tell history or tell a story, we start at the beginning and we say, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then that. This king ruled, then this king ruled, this battle happened, then that battle happened, this country did this, that country did that. But writers of ancient literature weren't locked in to exactly that same way of telling history. And so instead of always telling things exactly in the order they happened, they may talk about similar things that happened to what to the topic they're on, to kind of show that something happened a lot over a long period of time. For example, look on the screen now. I have chapter verses 6 and 7, but in the New Living Translation, which I think does a really good job in these verses in showing us exactly what's going on. So we've just talked about how the enemies are stopping them from rebuilding, and then we read in verse 6, it says, years later when Xerxes began his reign. The enemies of Judah wrote a letter of accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And then verse 7 says, even later, after that, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, the enemies of Judah, led by those men, sent a letter to King Artaxerxes in Aramaic. So by having these different examples, the author's trying to make a point. The point he's making is, there were a lot of people opposed to God. Yes, it's not necessarily in order, but he's saying there's a lot of people. Maybe I'll, I'll try to use a physical timeline here. So the story we're talking about is happening at this time, and they're experiencing opposition. Verse 6 tells us that years later, when a different king was in charge, they experienced more opposition. And then years later after that, they sent this letter to another king to try to stop God's people. The point is, reading all of that, we see, wow, a lot of people were trying to stop the Israelites from worshiping God. The enemies of God will always oppose his work. And even in this chapter, we see almost a hundred years of people opposing God. But even in that, God is faithful. Whether his enemies are those outside of the believers, or we'll talk about later in Ezra, when they profess to be inside the community of faith. So what do we have here? Well, in verse 6, again, we're talking about a letter that goes to someone, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. He's the king who was king during the book of Esther. And so he receives a letter of accusation against God's people. And then after that, the rest of chapter 4 is about a letter sent to King Artaxerxes, king after him. It's a formal Persian letter. What's interesting is that they put it in here in the language it was written in. This letter was not written in Hebrew. It was written in the language of Aramaic, which was kind of the trade language of the day. And so for the next couple chapters... It's in that language in the Bible. But this is an authentic letter, and the reason they put the letter in, in its original language, is the person putting this book together saying, this is a real thing that happened. You can look up this letter. These people were opposing God. They tried to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In the time the letter comes out, they're trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but this letter stops them. It may be the background to what happens in the book of Nehemiah. So the authors tell us who they were. They were resettled by a king named Ashurbanipal. They gather many opponents from different areas to support their plan. They gather people of key roles, judges, governors, officials. They're trying to get as many people together as they can, as many opponents to work against what God's people are doing. And so they send this letter from their state, their province, the province beyond the river where Jerusalem is. And they tell the king, we are your loyal subjects. 
In verse 14, their phrase in my translation is, we eat the salt of the palace. It means we're under obligation or service to the king. But they're really out for themselves. They're really trying to oppose what God's people are doing. They appeal to the king and his biggest fears. They say, king, you will lose honor, you will lose money if you let these people do what they're doing. And then they tell a bunch of lies. They mislead the king. They malign God's people. I'm going to just kind of highlight some things that happen in verses 12 through 16 about how they're doing this. Verse 12 says, Be it known to the king, the Jews who came up to you, come up from you to us, they've gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding, look what they say, that rebellious and wicked city. They're rebuilding the walls, repairing its foundations. Then in verse 13, they say, Be it known to the king, if the city is rebuilt, the walls finished, they will not pay taxes. They will not pay tribute, custom, toll. Your revenue will be impaired. Verse 14, they say, because they're loyal subjects, it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. The king is going to be dishonored if these people of God do what they want to do. And then they they go really sneaky. They say in verse 15, so what you should do is that a search should be made of the records. You should see if these people have ever been rebellious before. And you will learn it is a rebellious city. It's hurtful to kings and provinces. There was sedition stirred up in it from old. And then they'll say that is why the city was laid waste. And their final lie is they say, we make it known to the king if the city is rebuilt, then they're going to rebel again. You will have no possession in the province beyond the river in the state where Jerusalem is. These are lies that they're telling about God's people. The truth is that God's people did pay their taxes. We, in the book of Nehemiah, we see just a short account of this, that they're actually struggling to pay their taxes. They're really struggling with their finances because they're committed to paying their taxes to the governing authorities. So that's not true. That was a lie. Now, they're right about one thing, but they're kind of misleading. If you look at the history, the Israelites did rebel against other kings and empires. But just because they did that in the past, that doesn't mean they were going to do that in this case. They would much later in the future, but in this time period, they didn't. They're misleading, kind of picking and choosing what history they're sharing. And remember, this is a small group of people. They, they couldn't rebel against this mighty empire, but God's enemies bring that up to try to manipulate them. These type of lies are always experienced, or often experienced by God's followers. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul was once on trial, and his enemies made up a couple lies about him. They say, we have found this man to be a plague. He stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane dishonor God's temple, but we stopped him. None of these things they're saying are true. But these who are against God regard faithfulness to God as a kind of rebellion. And in a sense, they're right. Because when God's followers live for him, it is a rebellion against the world's order. They try to lie to win, but the truth will win out. So we should trust God to bring about his truth and justice. The last strategy the enemies use, the opponents use, is they try to pressure or postpone God's people from doing what they're called to do. In our text, verses 17 through 22 tell us this. The king heard their request. 
He examined the selective evidence they put before him, and he stopped the Israelites from rebuilding the walls. He might have done this because around the same time in his empire, the Egyptians had recently revolted. Maybe he's afraid of more rebellion. And he read the records. He saw they have revolted against God. And he saw there were powerful kings who had lived in Jerusalem and ruled a huge kingdom. And so they stopped the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And it stopped then until Nehemiah would come a few years later and the king would change his orders. A military unit probably stopped the building and maybe even broke them down. This is probably the background to what we read at the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah. He hears that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And that finally brings us to the end of chapter four. So remember, we've read about, we're talking about the people back here. They talk about a letter here. They talk about a long letter sent way here, but now 24 takes us back to what happened before. And it says the result of this opposition is that the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. It ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. For 15 plus years, 15 or 16 years, God's people were unable to rebuild the temple. That is a long delay, a long time to not be able to do it. Now, I realize I've talked about a lot of things and a lot of opposition, a lot of history things. You would say, Pastor John, what does any of that have to do with me today? Well, the truth is if we're living for God, we will experience opposition. People who will do those things, try to pressure, postpone us from following God. They may mislead others about us, malign us, or they'll try to make us afraid, or try to bribe others to work against God's people. And when we experience this opposition, there's a couple things we need to keep in mind. The first is we should remember who the real enemy is. The New Testament tells us in the book of Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle, we fight against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When someone opposes us, say they're against us trying to live for God, the enemy is not that person. The enemy is the one behind that person, that oppressor. The enemy is Satan, the one who works through that opposition. So that's one thing we have to remember. Our enemy is actually Satan, not this person in front of us. And the other thing we should remember is if we experience this opposition, there's good news in it. The good news is this type of opposition happens to all true followers of God. All true followers of God experience this, whether it's from unbelievers or even someone professing to know God. All followers of God experience this type of pressure. And so if we experience it, we need to check ourselves first to see if we're in the wrong, have the humility to examine ourselves. But we should also remember what Paul writes in 2 Timothy. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people, imposters, will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, while all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So if we experience opposition, someone saying, you shouldn't follow God in that way, trying to stop us from living for him, that's confirmation that we're following the Lord, that we're living for him, if we know we're living our lives based on God's word. It could be personally. They could be trying to get us to abandon our personal convictions or mocking us. Or it could be for believers of God as a whole 
because there's many who take pride in bringing down the church's reputation. Now, sometimes some of these people are exposing something that's true, and that should be brought out. We shouldn't be afraid of truth, but they often revel in the fact that they can knock down the church. But fortunately, as one scholar put it, whenever God initiates a spiritual work, there will be opposition, but God is sovereign and faithful. His enemies will not prevail. No matter what the opposition is, God's enemies will not prevail. His work will continue. Now, like in the book of Ezra, it could be delayed for a long time, but his work does continue. I'm not sure how you've experienced it, whether it's been someone at work or or a colleague or a friend or a family member who's tried to keep you from following God, but know that God's purposes do prevail. Now, sometimes if we look at a grander scale, we may be able to, we may try to overextend this application. I know there's been, it's been an awkward year, a very strange, different time. And I know that in different places, there's been government requests and things dealing with the coronavirus. If everybody's stopping doing something, that doesn't strike me as pressure against God's people. But that being said, there are places, even within the United States, are states where measures seem particularly targeted at churches. Now, that doesn't mean that the measure is wise or unwise, but when you're in a place where a church trying to be faithful follow all the recommended guidelines, is forced to close while a casino is open, that that shows to me that maybe our priorities aren't in the right place. But that's a small example of opposition. I don't think that's barely anything compared to what many of our brothers and sisters experience around the world. The pressure from government or from culture that works against God's people. Anything we've seen related to a coronavirus measure, that's nothing next to what our brothers and sisters in Christ experience. I know I was reading this week, I got a magazine from an organization, Voice of the Martyrs, which talks about what our brothers and sisters experience around the world. I spent a lot of time talking about North Korea, where it's, of course, illegal to be a Christian. If they find out you're a Christian or that you have a Bible or that someone in your family is a Christian or has a Bible, your whole family will go to a concentration camp for years, if not decades, or the rest of your life. It talked about places like in the country of Myanmar or Burma. It's been in the news recently because of a coup, but there's parts of that country that are controlled by separatist rebel groups. And this one area, controlled by a communist group, has been shutting down churches and arresting pastors over the past year. Or in Iran, where it's illegal for an Iranian to come to faith and to share their faith with others and where the government tries to track people and arrest family members and force people to inform on them about other believers. This is the type of opposition that God's people experience. And different places, have, they have different abilities to stand up for God or resist or impact their situation. But regardless of the situation, all believers in Christ, us included, we have the same call. And that call is no matter what the opposition is, we are called to persevere. We're called to persevere through that opposition. And that's the last point we're looking at. We are called to persevere. Called to persevere. Let's read again what happened then. So after 15 or 16 years, they've been unable to rebuild the temple at all. But chapter 5 tells us now there were prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, 
son of Edu, they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And after they prophesied, they spoke a message from God. Verse 2 says, their leaders, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Jozadak, they arose. They began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And those prophets were with them, supporting them. Here we see that with God's help, we can persevere through opposition. After this long period of time, God raises up some prophets, Haggai, Zechariah. They speak to the Jews, to the Israelites from God. And that's all the book of Ezra tells us. But the good news is we actually have some of their words in the Bible. We have a book of Haggai, a book of Zechariah that tell us the kinds of things that they were saying going to read a little bit from them. The book of Haggai tells us this. Haggai speaks to the people and says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, God's temple lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What's happened? You've sown much. You've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. Someone who earns a wage does so to put them into a bag with holes. Things are not going well for God's people. But look what he says after this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Think about what you are doing. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, the temple, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with your own house and your own purposes. The prophets see that whatever decision-making led the people to stop rebuilding, whether it was pressure, the word doesn't tell us exactly if that was wrong in the moment. It doesn't fill us in on those details. But clearly, 15 years is too long to not be doing what God has said. And so the prophets want a spiritual renewal. They want restored worship among God's people. This is how Zechariah puts it, the very beginning of the book of Zechariah. It says, it's the eighth month, second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Tells us who he is. And then in verse two, the word he has is, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God wants his people to come back to him, to live for him. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 2 tells us that God's spirit stirs. It works in the hearts of their leaders, and the rebuilding is resumed. They hear God's word, and they obey. They re-implement that first decree from Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Look at what they do, though. They're experiencing this opposition and this pressure. Their response isn't to attack their opponents, is we're going to go to war with these people, make sure they can't stop us anymore. They don't do that. They seek God. They focus on what God has called them to do. And they're supported and helped in this by the other prophets. That's all that our text tells us. But if we look at those books of Zechariah and Haggai, Zechariah tells us that they repented. They turned from their wrong. And they said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. They said, yes, we've done wrong and God has done 
what he feels is right. They repented. They turned from their sin. They acknowledged that God was just in how he dealt with him. And that's a first step for us too. If we're going to persevere through opposition, we must repent. We must turn away from what we've done against God. That's what we must do to first know God in the first place. If we've gone through our whole life not living for the Lord, but instead living for the things that we want, God calls us to repent, to turn away from that and trust in him. Because it's only then that we're qualified to worship God. We're only qualified to be able to persevere if our trust, our guidance for life, our relationship is with Jesus Christ. Because that's what God saw when he looked at us. He saw that like the Israelites, we were people living for ourselves, not following God or living for him. And so he sent his son, Jesus, that even when we pursued sin in our own way, Jesus perfectly lived for God. He didn't seek his own way. He persevered in living for God in every situation. That means that he should get all praise. He, nothing bad should ever happen to him. He's living completely for God. But instead, he died to pay for what we did against God. When we, like those Israelites, were compromising with sin, when we weren't worshiping God in purity, Jesus was. But he died because of what we had done. He died for us so that we can know God, that we can have a relationship with him. He was raised to new resurrection life so he can give life to people who know him. If we know Jesus, then we are able to persevere because he persevered. And the result of this, when we seek God and we obey him, let me go back to the book of Haggai one last time. It tells us about these people we know, Zerubbabel, Joshua, or Joshua, the high priest, but with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. The people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. God is with their efforts to rebuild and to serve him. They started to work on the temple. Once they had repented and turned from their sins, then they could obey God's command to build. They could have tried to done it on their own, but it would have come to ruin again. Instead, they said, no, we were wrong. God, we need you. Only God working through them enabled them to persevere. They were able to obey God's word. Now, their circumstances hadn't changed. Those enemies, those adversaries, those opponents are still around them, still telling them they shouldn't be doing this. They're still opposed, but... Obedience to God became more important for them than what their enemies were saying. As one scholar, James Hamilton, put it, God is glorified when the weak overcome the strong by faith. No matter how the odds may be stacked against God and his people, all of Satan's triumphs will come to nothing. So brothers and sisters, what opposition are you experiencing? I'm asking about you individually. We, we could talk about corporate op- opposition, but as we leave today, let's think about us. Who or when have we experienced someone trying to stop us from living for God? If we haven't experienced that, then we should ask ourselves, am I being faithful in living out what God has said? Because he said all those 
who obey Christ will be persecuted. But when we experience opposition, someone says, I don't like how you're living for Jesus, how you're doing this Christian thing, the decisions you make in your life, the beliefs you hold. What should we do? Well, first, we should have the humility to search our hearts and say, maybe they're bringing up something that's true, something I'm not seeing. Maybe I'm not living with the grace or patience that I should. So we should have that humility to check our hearts, examine ourselves. But if we look and we say, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm living out what God has said in his word. If we know that, then we're called to persevere. Persevere. We're not to focus on this person causing the opposition, but we are to focus on God. And we're to continue to serve him because continuing to serve God through opposition is worth it. This has been the example for us from our brothers and sisters in faith throughout church history. I think about the very first Christians and some of what they experienced. They dealt with some of the same opposition. They had all kinds of threats of death, actual death and execution, as well as a lot of lies said about them. Some are funny, but the early Christians were accused by unbelievers of being cannibals. Why? Because they talked about how they would eat the body of Christ and how they would drink his blood. And those who didn't know better said, see, they're they're cannibals. They were also accused of being incestuous because they called everybody, even their husbands and wives, brother and sister in Christ. So obviously they're committing gross sin. These were lies about the church, but the church persevered in serving God. And we are here today because of their perseverance. And God calls us to that same course moving forward. And in all of this, there's good news. We've read it a bunch over the past couple of weeks. But Jesus himself says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have struggle. You will be opposed. But take heart. I have overcome the world. If we know Jesus, then no matter what happens, we can persevere. And when he shows his faithfulness to us, we can worship him because he's worthy of that kind of worship.